are recording. And we're okay. recording. Okay. All right, so shall we begin? Nancy, what do you we think? We shall begin. Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I'm your host today, Jeannie Hedden Gallagher, and in this episode, we're talking about overdose and naloxone. My guests today are Nancy Campbell, a professor and head of the Department of Science and Technology Studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Hello, Jeannie. And Allie Morgan, a doctoral student in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at Rensselaer and a former Ambulance Corps emergency medical technician on campus. She is also a medical anthropologist. Good afternoon. Nancy, you've written a book, OD, Naloxone and the Politics of Overdose. What drew you to the history of drugs? I was always interested in the uh, equation between good drugs and good drug users and bad drugs and bad drug users, and the way in which we think good drugs solve social problems, bad drugs cause social problems. And those meanings, which have a lot to do with the calculus of moral worth, spill onto the users of drugs. All you have to think about is the difference in moral valuation between patients and addicts, and you automatically have the lay of that land. Mm -hmm. For some reason, even as a child growing up, I um, noticed that distinction and wondered about its cultural work. As a child, you this was something you, you've been, always been interested in this? Yeah, so I grew up in a small town with a father and a grandfather who were in medical practice together. And uh, I was allowed to work in the office, and I did spend time in the office growing up. And uh, that distinction was clear as a bell. I announced as a young girl that uh, my, my ambition was to write a history of the pill. And by that, I did not mean the oral contraceptive. I actually meant a history of drugs and the way in which drugs are used within our culture. I grew up to find out that there is actually a subspecialty in the discipline of history, uh, social history of alcohol and drugs, and uh, it spans many continents and many time periods. And I happen to have maybe 25, 30 years ago decided that my specialty would be 20th century opioids. This regrettably uh, has positioned me to have a lot to say currently about the opioid overdose epidemic. And so the book, OD, was really a long time coming. It was really something that I had thought about exploring for quite a long time. You say that it's regrettably that it positions you, but it can't be regrettably. This is your field. This is what you've, I don't know, this is what you love. Yes, I have to say that uh, I, ca I love drugs. I love the work that they allow me to do. They allow me to see the differences between social groups, between uh, cultural conflicts and antagonisms. Uh, I have studied gender and addiction, as well as gender and drug policy, and I'm also very interested in the history of drug treatment. And so I've written about various facets of 
uh, opioid use, including scientific addiction research. So research that really looks at, well, how does addiction work? What's the role of the brain? What's the role of neuroscience in exploring addiction? These themes have been part of my work now for a very long time. Uh, but I have also been especially interested in uh, people who do change the world. And um, so when I learned that there was a social movement to get naloxone out to people who might witness an overdose, I began following uh, people who were in that social movement. They were trying to change law and policy. They were trying to change pharmacy regulations, the FDA. They were trying to get naloxone made over the counter. They had a lot of goals, and they were using various kinds of tactics to um, realized some of those goals, and they actually did change the world. During the seven years or so that I've been working on this book, there has been a great deal of shift as overdose has moved from the margins uh, to becoming so culturally central. So I want to bring Allie into the conversation here because clearly this is, as a medical anthropologist, how did you get involved in this? How did you become interested in this field? And what I think is really interesting about Nancy's project is that the drug is a way into, you know, seeing a lot about um, structures of particularly U.S. culture and who gets access to treatment, who doesn't. It's a lens into race and gender and all of these things. So while I might not, you know, my work isn't centered around um, drug use per se, I am interested in the kinds of questions it brings up. Um, you know, personally for me, I mean, your story about growing up in a particular drug era, I went to Just Say No Club um, and really remember profoundly in my fourth grade classroom uh, watching a video of a, a young cancer patient who was given morphine. And we were taught that this was appropriate drug use. But once that spilled out into the streets, it wasn't. I carried that with me. I was um, a patient for a number of years before I took a course with Nancy where I um, um, used opioids. And for that, you know, overdose was never a question. It was never a concern on my or my physician's radar. Um, so it became interesting to me of, you know, why those distinctions were at play. You said that you were a patient? Yes. So following a high school sports injury, a series of unfortunate medical errors and chance um, gradually led to the amputation of my leg. Um, so in the course of that were, you know, several surgeries, several years spent hospitalized where I, you know, was put on long-term opioid therapy. So the idea that opioids is part of society and is good and is bad is a, is a personal one for you. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I've seen firsthand how these are really life-saving um, technologies, if we want to call them that, as Nancy does in the book. Remind me, wasn't it your brother who first introduced you to naloxone or Narcan? Yes. So probably 2006 or 2007, my brother was actually a medical student at the time. I was still in high school. And he knew at that point I was on high doses of fentanyl at home. Um, but overdose, or much less naloxone, had never been a concern. It was never raised. He came back from a conference um, with a small blue bag. So mm -hmm. it was a take-home naloxone kit that he had obtained at this conference and given it to my mother. But at that point, this still felt like 
um, travel artifact or, you know, an, an interesting souvenir, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, something that, you know, I had with me for a number of years. I think once I actually returned back to RPI, I showed it to Nancy, mm-hmm. but it was something I never assumed I would have to use. Um, mm-hmm. At what point I needed the gloves within the, the kit for something different altogether, but it was never something I imagined I would ever use as a pain patient. And I think that's a really important point because we think of pain patients as using opioids as prescribed. Now, many overdoses occur as a result of patients using opioids as prescribed. They're simply not educated around overdose prevention, and many of their family members, unlike Ali's brother, Uh, are not out there uh, getting naloxone kits from harm reduction activists. What's happened in this country is that harm reduction activists have taken into their own hands the need for bystander naloxone. Uh, Although today we have public health departments, we have various kinds of community-based organizations that are distributing naloxone, That is the result of a concerted social movement that has taken place differently in different places across the country in states as varied as New Mexico, um, Illinois, New York, California, Washington State. Um, In all of these places, small groups of independent people have gotten together and created social movements to get naloxone out to people who need it most. That's an interesting story because that doesn't happen around every medical technology or device or drug. That happens in the context of a social movement that's seeking solidarity and it's seeking to collectively reduce the harm that all drug users, whether they're pain patients or whether we call them persons with addiction, all drug users face this kind of danger for particular reasons that are both social and technical. And in science and technology studies, that's what we really do here at Rensselaer. We really try to look at the convergence between the social and the technical. And we do that whether we are historians or anthropologists, sociologists or political scientists. What we're really interested in is how, what is the cultural work, the social work that these kinds of technologies do. Now, these technologies, this is a narcotic antagonist, naloxone. And that means that it's uh, not an opioid, but it has a very strong affinity for the opioid receptor in your brain. And so what that means is that if an opioid is sitting on that receptor firmly, naloxone will actually come and knock it right off that receptor um, and allow your breathing to be restored. That's a really important um, pharmacological effect. But no one thought, even though that pharmacological effect was known as early as 1960, no one thought until the early 2000s, late 1990s, in a few places, why don't we get narcotic antagonists out to people who could actually use them? And I think that the patient problem is really still a problem because harm reduction activists don't reach pain patients. They don't reach doctors who think that they are prescribing properly and keeping their patients um, on medically prescribed drug regimens. 
And I think this is something really important that the book does is that it works against this dominant narrative right now that the opioid epidemic, and we can challenge why we call it an epidemic, Mm -hmm. um, where so many of these popular accounts locate it into the streaming of opioids into uh, vulnerable communities. So that's been the the common narrative as to how these things start or the overprescription, when it really is the environment. Hmm. So how we talk about how a person uses drugs, um, you know, helps us get beyond this myth that there is an appropriate type of um prescription that there is ever really a safe prescription. Um, It's like morphine milligram equivalencies are really the law of the land for physicians now. Um, When what Nancy's book really shows us is that it's a it's a poly drug epidemic more than anything. How did uh, how did naloxone go from being in the OR to uh, being out in the street? So naloxone was approved in 1971 by the FDA for use in overdose reversal. And that it it gradually found its way into use um, on emergency medical trucks, right? Both basic and advanced life support trucks. And it actually became the most commonly used drug by emergency personnel, particularly in cases of uh, young people, by the 1980s. However, naloxone, like any technology, there was a previous technology called nalorphine that was already in use in these kinds of settings and that was only gradually displaced by naloxone. So between 1971 and today, naloxone has traveled largely within the medical enclave for 30 years before anyone got the idea we should spring naloxone from the trap that it's in and get it into more places, closer to the places where people uh, were more likely to overdose. So in my book, I talk about the need for us to build a harm reduction infrastructure. Uh, And what that really means is that Uh, We should probably all have naloxone in our first aid kits or medicine cabinets. Naloxone should be probably much more common than it is, but, but not simply to have it. It should, we need to find who is most likely to witness an overdose and who is most likely to need it. The problem with that is that as soon as you say overdose, the dominant narrative that Allie was talking about earlier comes into people's minds. They think the only people who need this is, uh, are, are people who are frankly called junkies. And what I've tried to do is say that's not true. The people who need this are actually anyone who's using an opioid for any reason. Um, it is not, um, it, it is a myth to think that people can use opioids. Opioids are very tricky in the sense that the um, line between a therapeutic dose, an effective dose of an opioid, and a lethal dose of an opioid is a little too thin, right? So it does take some knowledge to use these drugs, and yet they're prescribed as if the doctors have all the knowledge and the patients have really very little. And particularly the patient's family members um, may not realize that they are exposed to the risk that they are running. And it's a line that is always changing depending on person and type of use and where they're using. Um, In addition to, you know, we've 
haven't talked about it yet, but you know these interruptions in use. So in the way that abstinence has been, you know, purported as the gold standard mm -hmm. of um, recovery, um, that's when we know that users are most at risk of overdosing is directly after. So even for one person, you know, this line is always in flux. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important thing for people to uh, take away, and that is that abstinence is a risk. It is a risk for overdose, and it's a risk for overdose death. Many overdoses are survived, um, both with and without naloxone. Um, maybe nine out of every 10 overdoses are survived, and one out of every 10 overdoses kills someone. And so you have to really think about what that means. Uh, if abstinence is a risk, uh, abstinence might occur because someone's in recovery, uh, because someone's in early recovery, because someone is re-entering um, from uh, criminal custody, jail, prison. Uh, part of the book is about uh, people in the United Kingdom, and particularly in Scotland, and about a series of studies there that showed definitively that risk is most elevated, risk for overdose is most elevated among people who are coming out of prison in the first two to four weeks that they are back out on the streets. And so it's really something where we have to start rethinking our, our behavior we advocate abstinence. Uh, there, we kind of live in an abstinence-only kind of culture, and we don't think of abstinence as a risk. But in fact, it is the greatest risk when it comes to opioid overdose. And I think that's really enlightening in how we think about emergency medical response to opioids, so or to overdose rather. If we, you know, look at a lot of these popular accounts that both praise the use of naloxone while, you know, critical of the uh, epidemic, you know, we hear these accounts of the same either medics or EMTs um, returning to the same household four or five times a day. And what are we really doing if we're not going to get there at the last overdose? Um, when we really need to think about what does that say that the overdoses are happening in rapid succession like that. Yeah, and I think what I find interesting is that this conversation or this transformation has been happening at a time of cultural change these past 40 years in the country. Naloxone has gone from the OR to the streets at the same time that it's okay to talk about overdose now. That's a cultural shift. And that's a really recent cultural shift. As early, uh, I would say, 2015, you began to see obituaries mention the cause of death as being opioid or heroin overdose, fentanyl overdose. And that was because there's a really interesting wrinkle in this particular social movement, and that is that the old uh, parents' movement, which was um, in during the Reagan era, the sort of just-say-no parents' movement, that movement has really fallen away. And now you have a parents' movement um, incredible, um, of incredible emotional force where parents are actually distributing naloxone. Parents are becoming harm reductionists because they don't want other parents to lose the sons and daughters that they did. And so they're organizing, they're becoming harm reductionists, and they are creating harm reduction infrastructures all over the country which is really a very different 
expectation of how parents would handle their grief and respond to other drug users. It really is profound to see someone, to see, you know, it in use. Um, a lot of times they call it the Lazarus effect of really the body springing back. Um, is that an important part of the story of how the use of it is just so drastic and so fast? I think there is something to that, Allie. And uh, when I first started interviewing people about naloxone, uh, these were activists who often described naloxone as a miracle drug, a wonder drug, something that indeed raised people from the dead. In fact, in North Carolina, there's a group called Project Lazarus. And I those meanings in the early days, uh, I was hearing a lot about that. What's interesting is that um, recently there's been a movement towards nasal naloxone. In fact, the naloxone I have in my briefcase is nasal naloxone given to me by the Rensselaer County uh, Department of Health. And I think some of the meaning around the, the almost spiritual meaning around resurrection and um, revival has uh, gone away as people have become more familiar with the technology. And so I do think that there are meanings uh, inherent in a way in uh, the different routes of administration by which people get naloxone into their systems. We're no longer talking about needles. We're no longer talking about um, injection. We're talking about other forms, other technological forms, some of them bordering on science fiction. So I think we will see a lot of technological innovation in this sector. And what interests me about that as a historian is that um, addiction treatment drugs and um, other technologies that have to do with addiction have uh, been um, stagnant for a long time. Between the beginnings of the use of methadone um, as a maintenance drug in the mid-1960s New York City, uh, up until buprenorphine or Suboxone, which uh, wasn't, didn't hit the U.S. market until 2003 and required a lot of policy shift for doctors to be able to prescribe it in their offices, there was nothing. There was no technological innovation in this sector. And in fact, Suboxone was an orphan drug. It was, it was um, developed as a medication for the treatment of addiction, and it was not thought to have much of a market. And look at what happened. Now, interestingly, right, at the same time as we're talking about this movement of naloxone, we're also, of course, talking about an increasing um, number of overdose deaths, regrettably so, um, in this country. And so you have technologies to, to uh, deal with them. But there are also, I would say, people are increasingly aware of these technologies of addiction therapeutics, of the some of the unfairnesses that have been built into overdose. Overdose was for a very long time something that was largely confined to communities of color. And uh, there is something to the idea that as more white people became uh, acquainted with 
opioid overdose deaths, there began to be more interest in that sector. However, we also see a market that explodes for addiction therapeutics and now for naloxone. However, what we should always remember is that in behind all of that, there are activists and advocates who are pushing these technologies um, who were who met with a lot of barriers and a lot of obstacles. It was not easy to get naloxone into the hand of bystanders. That breaks a lot of rules, and it meant that a lot of legal um, aspects of naloxone access and what we call Good Samaritan laws had to be changed in order for that to become possible. As a EMT, you used, did you use naloxone ever? Yes. How did that work? And this is where it's, you know, these laws are interesting in that um, as a basic, on a basic life support rig, it's usually typically just EMTs rather than paramedics, where we can only get orders for nasal uh, naloxone, whereas uh, paramedics have been using this for years and able to titrate this and um, use it intravenously. Um, you know, I think it was only in 2013 that we finally had standing orders here to be able to um, use this without calling medical control every time you needed it. Hmm. Um, and it varies state by state, area to area, um, and usually is, you know, the work of activists um, who put this onto the radar. One of the uh, things that harm reduction activists often say is nobody should die uh, of an overdose. These are completely preventable deaths. What prevents us from preventing an overdose death is often the way that we see the world and the way that we see the person in front of us. And I think that's one of the biggest messages of the book. And one of the challenges that I think is happening today, especially with the intranasal naloxone that's now being widely distributed, uh, is that people don't get that education, right? They don't get the context that they used to get because when harm reduction activists started educating people about how to prevent overdose deaths, they would take one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. Now naloxone trainings are so brief, they are five minutes, and uh, people go out equipped with naloxone, but they may not go out equipped with the values of harm reduction or the way of seeing the world that harm reductionists really pioneered and really put together a language of respect and autonomy and dignity. That is my worry about naloxone these days because I resonated with the values of harm reduction and the movement's emphasis on taking one's health into one's own hands. And that's where I think we need to not just look at naloxone. We need to look at every other type of treatment and everything else that accompanies that because naloxone itself might save lives, but it can't transform a life. Yes. I think we need to look at what I would call harm reduction infrastructure and the idea that uh, you have um, a healthcare infrastructure that leans towards harm reduction rather than a healthcare infrastructure that leans towards splitting off 
legal use from illegal use or medical use from non-medical use. I think these things are convergent. And so harm reduction infrastructure, I'd like to see harm reduction infused throughout the treatment infrastructure and throughout healthcare. Well, thank you both very much for your time. Why Not Change the World is recorded in the Soloist Suite at MPAC, the Curtis R. Priam Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Thank you to the MPAC staff for their assistance, and thank you for listening.